is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. A new Amazon show called Ring Nation. It's pulling together all kinds of funny and crazy moments captured on Ring videos, but critics say it goes way too far. We'll go in-depth into what they're saying. The California Air Resources Board voting today to move ahead with a plan to ban gas-powered cars by 2035. We look into whether the electric grid can handle what would be a really big increased demand for power. We also look into whether other states are going to follow along. New data is out on life expectancy. COVID was a big factor in a drop. We'll tell you where California ended up. President Biden taking it upon himself to partially cancel his student debt and make DACA permanent. Is that legal? We may have doubles out there, all of us. New research shows how much in common genetically we may have with people we don't even know. You know, doppelgangers. And would you want a pet alligator? Can they even be pets? Uh, Well, no, they can't. But that doesn't stop some people, apparently. Maybe like a service a alligator service alligator. With a big toothy grin? Yeah, it's a cute alligator, I have to admit. It, it does look friendly, it which does. is a strange thing to say. I know. But uh, it's in the running for America's favorite pet. So yeah. at the end of the show, we'll talk about that. We start, though, with criticism over the new show Ring Nation. Chad Marlowe is senior policy counsel for the ACLU. And Myesha Hayes is campaign strategies director of Media Justice. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Chad, uh, let me start with with you. Can you briefly explain to our listeners what exactly this show is about? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what I think it's about. Uh, what what it seems to me is an it it looks like an attempt by Ring uh, to kind of take a product that has been a real really problematic from a kind of a criminal justice and racial justice lens, and try to turn it into something that's entertaining. Uh, and fun and palatable to the public, I think, with the end goal of uh, of selling more ring doorbells to the public. But this is no America's Funniest Home Videos. Uh, this is a device that has been used uh, to to kind of heighten racist reactions, you know, essentially allowing people to, you know, in white neighborhoods to report suspicious people, which always seem to be people of color, or to bring more policing into already over-policed neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, having Wanda Sykes hosted, I'm a big Wanda Sykes fan. But at the end of the day, um, you know, again, they're they're using their enormous outreach as a company to try to make a, a fairly dangerous product, uh, something that makes people laugh, even potentially at the risk of embarrassing others or intruding into their privacy. Maisha, do you agree? And is this really Ring's fault or is it the next door dot coms of the world or people would just gossip among their neighbors anyway? There's a whole bunch of people who use Ring just to see if there's a package at the door. You were breaking out. Um, could you repeat your question? Yeah. Is this really Ring's fault in any way? Do, do you agree with what, what Chad was saying there, if, if, if you could hear him? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the public has been really duped about, you know, what Amazon Ring is and how dangerous it is in our communities. These devices are capable of surveilling so much more than who's dropping off a package at your front door. Anybody captured on, you know, anybody passing by, you know, your front door is captured on these devices. And those people did not consent to be a part of this private surveillance network. Um, so I think, you know, we've been campaigning around Ring for a number of years because these partnerships, as, as Chad has talked about, 
um, particularly their partnerships with, with the police, have really opened up new, new ways for law enforcement to harm black and, black and brown immigrant you know, communities. Well, Chad, let me uh, run this by you. Uh, a representative for MGM, uh, you know, they told The Hollywood Reporter that the show gets the permissions for each video from the owner and anyone who can be identified in the video or from companies that hold the rights to the clips. So does that not satisfy the concern that innocent people would be captured and exploited in a show without their approval? Um, It does to that one issue. But I think the secondary issue is, you know, it, it, it normalizes these devices. So, you know, people watch this show, uh, they laugh either with the people on the video or at their expense. Um, and then they go out and say, hey, you know what? I got to get me one of those ring doorbells. But then their ring doorbells are not limited to developing videos for this show. Their ring doorbells are used to spy on their neighbors. They're used to feed data to police. Again, even worse in communities that are over-policed. And so, you know, I, I, in a way, if you want to kind of go back to, to an older example, it looks a lot like a 21st century Trojan horse, right? Ring is saying, look at this beautiful horse, you know, put this on your front doorstep. Uh, and it turns out there's an army inside. And I think that's the problem here. It's selling Ring now as an entertainment device, when in fact it is, it is far more and far more dangerous than that. Maisha, back to you and back to this idea that the, the camera is the problem. Isn't this a people problem and not the camera's fault? I mean, the people are going to spy on their neighbors anyways, if that's what they're using it for. You can do that with binoculars. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem that we have is that, you know, this is an Amazon-owned studio producing a show about Amazon surveillance products. So it's really clear that Amazon is doing everything in its power to rebrand ring and attempt to distract us from the bad publicity it has actually gotten over the past few years. And just as Chad was saying, this is about also normalizing surveillance in our communities. But I also want to add that this is, you know, uh, not only a tactic to produce, you know, more positive PR, but it also deepens the pockets of a company that has already made a business of criminalizing black and brown people. We know media is a powerful tool in reshaping, you know, this narrative. And we felt like it's really important to respond and make it clear that a few funny videos cannot erase the harm that these devices cause for communities of color. Maisha Hayes, uh, Campaign Strategies Director, Media Justice, Chad Marlowe, Senior Policy Counsel for the ACLU. State Air Resources Board votes today on the policy to ban the sale of gas-powered cars in California by 2035. Now, if the state follows through... Big changes will be needed to meet the increased demand for electricity. This in a state that is under the threat of blackouts and brownouts during summer heat waves. Severin Borenstein is director of the Energy Institute at the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. He also served on the Board of Governors of the California Power Exchange. Thanks for being with us. Nice to be with you. So, Actually, I'm also currently on the Board of Governors of the California Independent System Operator, I should say. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know how you have enough time in the day to do all that stuff, but <laughs> my hat's off to you. Um, thanks. How do you, in a state where, uh, as you know, you know, it seems like every time the wind blows too strong, the power goes out. How are we going to have enough power if, in fact, we make this transition by... 2035 to uh, a substantial number of vehicles being electric ones and requiring recharging? 
Well, first, let me say the, the only outages we've had in California that were due to not having enough generation uh, in the last 20 years were the one were two short outages in August of 2020. Uh, everything else, uh, we have had outages due to trees falling on lines and due to fear of wildfire and so forth. But as we increase the number of electric vehicles, we are going to need more electricity. When you do the math, though, the, this mandate is likely to increase the total demand for electricity by about 20 percent. Uh, and that's recognizing by 2035. That's recognizing that we're not going to take all the old cars off the road by 2035. We're just going to make new car sales electric. Now, 20% is a pretty big increase if we don't manage it well, and particularly if it happens all at the end of the day when the sun is setting or losing the solar power. Uh, that would be a real problem. On the other hand, if we do manage it well and we can move charging to times when we have plenty of power, particularly during the middle of the day when the sun is shining, we have lots of solar generation, often too much these days, then I don't think it's any problem at all. So the real question is not, can we manage this extra power, but can we make sure it gets used at a time when the electricity is plentiful and that we don't crowd it all into those few hours when it's going to likely to be a real problem. So then you hope everybody's charging at their offices because people go home at five or six o'clock and they charge. But we still get all of these flex alerts called and people are, are mystified when we get this because it can be hot for a week and a half. And then it's like, oh, next Thursday, flex alert, guys. Nobody really understands. We're keeping one of the nuke plants online so we can have that percentage of power with us longer than we thought we would. So aren't we still right up against the line here? We, we are. Um, we, we, are having, we are having a very tight situation right now. Um, that's really not going to be affected by this new mandate, which is going to gradually phase in over time. But we are having uh, flex alerts. And uh, the reason they often come late in the heat wave is because buildings don't cool down as well when it's hot. And so we the demand for air conditioning gradually steps up every day of a heat wave. And so we often don't get a flex alert for the first couple of days. And then on the third day of a heat wave, that's when things get really tight. Um, and you're right, when they, the time when they get tight is the end of the day. It's when the sun is setting, people are coming home, but they're still running air conditioning. Uh, that's when we really have the biggest net uh, shortage on the system as we lose solar and are still air conditioning a lot. And that's when we need to encourage people to, where they can move their demand, move it off of those hours. So charging at work is going to be a big part of this. Of course, we don't know what the work schedules are going to look like 10 or 15 years from now. Are people going to be going to work most days or are they going to be working from home a lot more? So there's a lot of uncertainty, but this, this new mandate is going to have to be paired with a lot of focus on making sure we get charging stations where we need them and people use them when it is most, most well, appropriate. Well, and, and, and I, I took note of the fact that when you're going through the litany of, of, of why it, it could work out well, it was all predicated on the notion of if we do it right, how confident are you that we're going to do it right? I'm, I'm pretty confident. I, I'm seeing some pretty good signs of uh, gradual changes in the way people uh, use electricity. Uh, but it's gonna, it, we're not there yet. It's going to take a lot more effort to make people understand that 
in order to make this uh, climate respond to the climate crisis, we're not we're going to have to pay a bit more attention to energy than we're used to. We, you know, we're used to not even thinking about it at all. We're used to just turning on the light anytime day or night, or turning on the air conditioning anytime day or night, and always assuming there's plenty of power. Uh, and that that we can do that still, but it's going to be really expensive if we also phase out fossil fuels. Severin Bornstein there, director of the Energy Institute at UC Berkeley and uh, Cal Isail Board of Governors. Coming up, new research doubles down on the idea that lookalikes share a lot more in common than just the same face. And America's next favorite pet could be an alligator. Right now, though, back to the California plan to ban the sale of gas-powered cars by 2035. State's the largest auto market in the country, so the car companies need to adjust to this. The other states, too. I think Washington says, yeah, we'll go along. Uh, David Welch is the Detroit bureau chief for Bloomberg News, author of the upcoming book, Charging Ahead, GM, Mary Barra, and the Reinvention of an American Icon. David, thanks for being with us. So the car companies are already moving in this direction? They are, uh, and, and slowly but surely. If you look at it now, they've got, you know, maybe two dozen EVs on the market, and uh, some of those are things like the Chevy Bolt and Nissan Leaf that have been around a while. But within a couple of years, we're going to have more than 100 pure electric vehicles uh, for sale in the United States. And most companies are pledging to be all electric by either 2035, which General Motors has done, or 2040. And with California pushing the dial on that, you may see more companies try to get into step with similar pledges to go all EV by then. But, of course, that goes back to the age-old problem with electric vehicles about charging them. And there are so many parts of the country, and I, I get it that 2035 is still a number of years off. But still, there are huge parts of the United States where you, good luck finding a place to charge an electric car. Yeah, what you're going to say, you will see those. People will start to learn, this is a cultural adjustment, to charge up their cars the way they charge up their cell phones. I, I remember when I had an iPhone 4 and I'd be out for interviews all day long and I'd be charging here, charging there, wherever I could because the phone couldn't keep the charge all day. You could have a situation by 2035 where the cars have much longer range and there are more charging stations around, but people are so charged, you know, their vehicles are charged up for 400 plus miles, uh, maybe as many as 500 miles by then that they're, you don't need quite a charging infrastructure out there. It'll be more for the long road trips. You'll have chargers out on the highway system, but for people tooling around to work to different appointments all day long, they're not going to be quite as worried about that. You look at some of the cars today, 200 miles of range, and if the weather's not totally cooperative, it's colder, it could be 170 or so. You burn that, you burn through that pretty quickly, and it seems like a, a, a huge barrier for EVs. I think by 2035, it won't, won't be. That doesn't mean everyone's going to want an electric vehicle in 2035, but some of these technological barriers, charging infrastructure and, and, and charging distance, a lot of that stuff could be less of a problem 12, 13 years from now. Are the automakers in the charging business? Are they thinking about this or have you seen plans? I mean, what do people in apartment buildings do or street parking? Yeah, those are that's that, that's a huge issue right there. You're going to have to have parking garages with charging systems or on-street parking maybe even with charging. You see some of that stuff now, like, you know, look at some of the uh, parking meters, they're electric now. It's not just drop the quarter in and, and turn the mechanically controlled knob. Um, 
but you, and you do see a lot of chargers in garages now, but it's, it's like maybe eight or 10 as opposed to, you know, the, the hundreds of spaces that are actually in the garage. So you're going to need a solution like that for apartment dwellers. And, you know, let's face it, a lot of apartment dwellers in places like New York and San Francisco, they're not really, uh, those people don't own cars. They use public transit because it's just too expensive to park a vehicle in cities like that. But for suburban apartment dwellers in other cities, they do have their own parking spaces and you could have charging there. But it, that is the biggest problem uh, that, that they're going to have to lick. And, you know, that gets into the question of, will everybody want an electric vehicle by 2035? I think it's a stretch target. It's not a, an insane idea, but I think it's a stretch for a lot of people. I still know people who use flip phones. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll get the last gas car in 2034. Uh, David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News, and the book Charging Ahead, GM, Mary Barra, and the Reinvention of an American Icon. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. There's new CDC data out on life expectancy for 2020, first year of the pandemic. Found New York had the largest drop three years from 80 to 77. New York got hit the hardest early in the pandemic as the virus tore through New York City and surrounding areas. California had the 16th largest drop nearly two years from 80.9 to 79. With us is Dr. Andrew Neumer, Professor of Population, Health and Disease Prevention at UC Irvine. Thanks for being with us. So I, I guess it, it's not surprising since the United States had uh, such a bad outcome with the pandemic that we would see life expectancy drop. Uh, is there anything, though, in the numbers that you find in the long range troubling? Hi, Charles. Uh, glad to be back on KNX. Uh, I mean, what troubles me is that I think we're going to keep seeing this. I mean, I mean, these numbers that the CDC published today for the year 2000 are kind of in the rearview mirror now for a lot of the listeners. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just worried that we're going to be seeing sustained decreases in, in life expectancy, that we're going to stay around uh, 79 years instead of rebounding to 81 years where we belong. Right, because do you think people forget that we're still having X amount of deaths from COVID every single day, and that number is way too high? So now we have a new thing, a new category that is uh, that's ending lives every day of the year. Yeah, Mike, I definitely think uh, so. I mean, heart attack kills about uh, 100,000 people a year in in the U.S. That that's uh, heart attack in the strict sense of the word, not not all heart disease, but um, and you know, COVID uh, killed you know, half a million people two two years in a row. Uh, you know, the deaths are coming down somewhat, but we're still talking about a major cause of death. So, I mean, is it as, as simple, and I put simple in, in quotes, is it as simple as just if enough people get vaccinated and we're able to bring down the infection rate and therefore the numbers of people who uh, on a yearly basis die from COVID uh, this number, uh, life expectancy, will start going back up? Or are there other issues out there that may keep it suppressed? Uh, I mean, my biggest fear is that is that we're going to see more and more uh, severe disease among the vaccinated and that it will become a bit like the flu shot, where some years the boosters are better than others. Um, so it, that's really the, the key question, though, is is how... You know, how much can we, what will the final numbers be? The first 12 months of COVID from 
March 2020 to the end of February 2021 saw about a half a million deaths. And the second 12 months from March 2021 till February 2022 saw just under half a million deaths. And that we're still experiencing the third 12 months. And it'll be interesting to see where that comes in. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, but uh, at the same time, you know, it's going to exceed that 100,000 number for heart disease. So, We'll just we'll just have to see. I mean, I mean, COVID remains a, a, a potent force. Just how potent is gonna we're, we're gonna find out this this winter. Um, you know, that first twelve months we were largely unvaccinated. The second twelve months was kind of a mixed bag. So, some people were, some people weren't. And uh, in the, and this third twelve month period that we're in right now, I mean, pretty much everyone who who wants to get vaccinated has been vaccinated at this point. So that's really going to be where we're going to find out what's what. Dr. Andrew Neumer, Professor of Population Health and Disease Prevention at UC Irvine. Doctor, thanks for coming back. President Biden has made two big and bold executive moves this week. He partially canceled student debt and his administration also finalized a rule to transform the immigration policy known as DACA into a federal regulation. It's a movement to protect it from legal challenges. Before, there was talk that these two issues needed to be solved through Congress, so are the changes legal? With us is constitutional scholar John Shu, served in the George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush White Houses. John, thanks for being back with us. Let's take student loans and we'll get to DACA in a minute. But I remember this uh, campaign promise, right? We want Congress to do this and here's the amount. I want to do the $10,000. But then time kept ticking by and we know what the approval ratings are. I've seen the commentary like he needed a win. So he did it by the stroke of the pen. Can he? Could he? Well, uh, Mike and Charles, I, I think you're right. There was a campaign issue, and even Nancy Pelosi last year herself said that the president had to go through Congress. Uh, They found what they think is an exception that will stand up in court through the HEROES Act of 2003. Uh, The problem is that the HEROES Act was passed after 9-11. Although it does use the words, quote, national emergency, it also uses the words war uh, and disaster. And I think... um, That bill, the intent of that bill, was to help uh, servicemen and women who also were carrying student debt uh, who were fighting a war. Uh, And uh, that something like 9-11 or the response to 9-11 would not impact them and that they wouldn't have to worry about that while they were fighting. So the fact that the the president is using the statutory hook, it's, it's awfully thin ice. I mean, doesn't this country have a sort of long history of taking these various congressional acts like, you know, right after 9-11 and then using it for a multitude of things that one can argue have very little to do with 9-11? So if that's the case, isn't this just one more? Yes, of course. And then and but the government has had a history of doing this even with non 9-11 bills. For example, uh, there was a Supreme Court case a few years ago uh, called the Yates case where the government prosecutors used the Sarbanes-Oxley bill, which is for securities fraud. They used that to prosecute a guy for catching a fish that was too big, that was outside of the, the, uh, the fish and wildlife regulations. And the Supreme Court struck that down, but that still was an awfully long fight for something that really shouldn't have been, they shouldn't have used that statute at all. So do you expect some sort of challenge here or is that horse out of the barn because as soon as this website goes up and people get their forms and then they get the 10,000 canceled 
Can we really expect some court ruling that says, actually, we're going to take that tab and, and put it back on? Sorry, guys. Well, I don't know that the court can do that. But what the court can do, assuming they find a suitable plaintiff, you know, the, it has to be somebody who actually suffered an injury in fact, most likely the, a loan servicer uh, against whom these, uh, this new ex- executive action would probably hurt. Uh, but uh, the court would probably say, you, you know, for those who have already received their ten or $20,000 break, um, you know, congratulations, but this cannot happen again in the future. That's probably the better way to do it. And the, the court, uh, this most recent term, decided a West Virginia case in the major questions doctrine, and I think that at least part of that case would apply to this situation with the student debt. Okay, so now let's talk about DACA. Can the president do what he did? Well, the, the president can certainly proceed with notice and comment and creating a federal regulation as he did. The problem with it is that right now uh, the district court in Texas has uh, ruled DACA as uh, unlawful and unconstitutional. It has been appealed to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit covers Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi. Now, the Fifth Circuit has not issued its decision yet, but based on the oral argument, it is likely that they'll agree with the U.S. District Court. Uh, so, you know, the, the whole premise of DACA was, uh, was on shaky ground to begin with when President Obama said that he had a pen and a phone and he would go ahead and do what Congress either would not or could not. Uh, that's kind of a problem. And I think it's, uh, I think it's right that the states would uh, sue the federal government and say, well, you know, that this DACA program, as well-meaning as it is, is not in line with the current statute, which is the Immigration and Nationality Act. If Obama had the pen and the phone and Biden's got the pen now and he's uh, triple underlined it, is it is it any stronger than it was a week ago in the eyes of, of these, these courts that are going to look at it? Well, a little bit in the sense that he's he's codified it into the federal register. And so, but really, the Supreme Court already ruled during the Trump administration that even if the president, if President Trump felt that DACA was improperly instituted, that they could, they could just not arbitrarily, you know, remove DACA or delete it, that they had to go through the, an administrative process to do it. So all this really does, if the court rules DACA illegal, all that it does is it makes it harder uh, to delete the program, that they have to go through the administrative process. But it doesn't change the end result. How long of a history is there in this country of presidents doing this sort of thing, whether it's with, with DACA or student loans, by executive action? Is that a, a, a fairly recent thing? By fair, fairly recent, I mean in the past, you know, 50 to 100 no, years? Yeah, no, the presidents, presidents has, have always tried to exercise what they believe with their executive power. But more recently, with the growth, the massive growth of the administrative after World War II, and uh, especially then after the 70s, um, you know, more and more of American life is controlled by these administrative agencies, and Congress more and more tries, tries to avoid its responsibility and either shift the responsibility to the courts because they have lifetime appointment or shift the responsibility to the president so that the, the Congress people can say, hey, it's not our fault, you know, vote for us again, please. So it, it is... Some of it is a recent problem, uh, but presidents have always tried to, you know, stretch the bounds of their authority. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, in some situations, look, presidents are going to try to be 
president, I'm the executive, I'm going to sign this, we're going to do it. Um, but if Congress would just do more of their jobs, we wouldn't always be in this position. Oh, yes, that's for sure. All right, John Shue, uh, he was in the George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush White House's constitutional scholar. And you know how uh, earlier in the show we were talking about California banning the sale of uh, gas-powered cars by 2035? Mm. Well, it's now official. Uh, it was a unanimous vote of the uh, board. So uh, 2035 is the target date when new electric cars will be the order of the day, and you are not supposed to be able to buy new gas ones. I remember the, the spokesman for the airport earlier this week. They said, what do you think the chance? He's like, 99.9% that it'll pass. So yeah. well, there, there we go. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Do you have a double? Somebody who looks like you but isn't related. Doppelgangers, they're real. There are people who look almost identical to one another out there despite not having that uh, direct family relationship. Researchers in Spain studied doppelgangers and found some of them have a lot in common genetically. So with us to explain is study lead author Dr. Manel Estella with the uh, Josep Carias Leukemia Research Institute in Barcelona, Spain. Doctor, thanks for joining us. So what got you interested in this? Was it something like we've been told someone else looks like us? Yeah. So there were different reasons, but it is true that I wonder myself that uh, why sometimes people look alike and all of us has this curiosity. And this relates to the concept of nature versus nurture. What's important, what we inherit or what we do, our lifestyle. And this type of studies try to solve that question. I mean, we have such a large population on the planet, right? Uh, yeah. Is there even a, 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 I don't know, just sort of a preliminary guess on how many people are likely to look kind of like, you know, like like me or you or Mike? Yeah. So this uh, is important how we define uh, lookalike. For example, somebody that is 100% identical, it is very difficult still. But somebody like is 80% uh, identical, 75% identical, that is very likely, in fact. In fact, that is probable that, that around the world, with the number, with a high number of population right in the planet, uh, there are somebody that looks very much like you. And this didn't happen before because we were less people around uh, in the Middle Ages, for example. <laughs> uh, but now that there's something else here is that people are using Internet and TikTok and Instagram and other apps just to find people that look like them. So now it's easier to find somebody that looks like you. So when you got these people who look very, very similar, what did you find when you started really digging into the reasons for this? Yeah. So first, I, I took a, a scientific approach, okay? Because um, then, even if somebody tells you that you look like another, you have to show that this is really true. So we ran these uh, facial recognition algorithms. Then uh, we, we proceed to the analysis of the biological material of these people. And this, in in this biological material, we we studied the genes, the regulation of the genes, and, and bacteria how many types of bacteria we have, and this is called the microbiome, that it's, it's also relevant. And we found at the end of the story is that they look alike mostly by the genes, by the genetic sequence of the genes. So, I mean, in, in its simplest way of understanding it, because that's the only thing I get is simple things. <laughs> <laughs> in its, simple, its simplest way, is it just that there are only so many ways, a finite number of ways 
that a human face can be put together. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So, so um, um, sometimes we think that we're very complicated, we're, but we're just uh, like an, another animal, not, not so, so much complicated. So in, in our case, uh, around uh, 2,000 genes uh, are relevant for the face. It's what we found in our study, around 2,000 genes. Okay? And we have uh, around, uh, imagine, 40,000 genes. Um, so in these genes, only sometimes one variation of the gene is important. And this can be interesting because now, if you know that these genes are relevant for the shape of the nose, of the eyes, of the mouth, of the lip, for the bone structure of your head, so you can think that using this genome, you can start uh, reconstructing a face, making a face from the genome, and that may have applications in forensic medicine, for example. When you got these people together, were there other similarities? I mean, height and weight? Yeah. So at, at the beginning, I, we just look at the, at the faces, no? like a mathematical look at the, at the face. Uh, but also these people, they, they took a questionnaire with more seven, than 75 questions, trying to, to see how they are. No? And there are other things that uh, they are look alike. Um, for example, they have similar height, similar weight, for example. Um, or, or, or both of them, uh, they are smokers, or both of them are non-smokers. Okay, and this can relate to addiction, that these are in part is inherited also. So there are other things that these people look alike. And, and people that, uh, so I'm, I'm more a scientist, I didn't look in, in detail at that, but for example, some people that know some of these couples, uh, they know, they told me that sometimes even they work alike. <laughs> you, you had mentioned that uh, one of the ways you went about studying this was to use facial recognition, right? Yeah, right. yeah. But that raises yeah. an interesting question. Are these people who are virtual lookalikes capable of fooling facial recognition software? They are. In, and in, in fact, we have not tried that. But it is known, that, for example, that brothers, uh, they can fool uh, iPhones and others, open the iPhone of the other sometimes. Because relative, you have a brother, you know, you look a lot like your brother sometimes. So, And this is happening now. Uh, so we have to be, of course, uh, careful. Uh, as the problems do better, they're able to, to distinguish more traits, of course. Uh, but, uh, for example, in twins, it's, it's impossible, almost impossible to distinguish them. You want to get on the plane before your doppelganger, yeah. or else you're going to say no. <laughs> yeah, you don't yeah, want well, the airline yeah. to say you've you've already boarded. <laughs> no, no, or at least that your your uh, double or your lookalike is a good guy. Yeah, okay? <laughs> you'll be in trouble. Dr. Manella Siller, uh, <laughs> Josep Carreras, the Leukemia Research Institute in Barcelona, Spain. Doc, thanks. So you know, when you think of a pet, you think of uh, dogs, right? Cats. Uh, birds, rabbits, hamsters, maybe fishes. even yeah, fishes, snakes. Uh, I wouldn't think of a snake, but some people do. Yeah, it's not unusual for any of them to be a pet. You know, it's unusual. Yeah, an alligator. Very unusual. But there is one. He's famous. He's in Pennsylvania. Name's Wally. He's seven years old. He's a licensed emotional support animal. He's got a huge TikTok following. Why is that always the, the thing, right? It's like, how did the alligator pet get famous? Well, TikTok. Uh, he's in the running also for America's Favorite Pets, which is a contest which is going on right now. Well, you know, he's got like 70,000 followers, yeah. this, this gator. 
And, uh, you know, apparently it, it's owned by somebody who's in the business of rescuing reptiles because mm-hmm. it's illegal to actually own a, a, a pet in the state of Pennsylvania, probably in most places, that happens to be an alligator. But uh, it turns out that this particular gator, Wally, is – and I've seen the video of you. He's, he's really adorable. <laughs> he really that's is. That's the thing. I, you know, and, and they use him for uh, people who have different distressed uh, uh, issues. And uh, apparently they're very soothed by this alligator. Now, I don't know who these people are, Mike, but I, and I don't know how you would react. I don't think I would be soothed by an alligator. Yeah, that's the thing. So we're, we're trying to get in touch with the, uh, his, his person, which is, which is Joe. And yeah. uh, Joe says, and he's in the TikTok videos, that he, that he takes Wally. And, and Wally will love to go up and, and snuggle with people. But I love the ones where, like, Wally is sitting on the table or the fence. Yeah. He's not huge yet. He's, you know, smallish. Uh, and they're just he's big like, enough. Yeah, right. I know. Yeah, well, the teeth big are enough. big enough, right? Yeah. But the people are like 10 feet away, and they're like, oh, that's, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, let me just slowly reach out. Well, and, you know, and, and the thing with, with its owner, Joe, is – and this part I don't get. He says that uh, uh, that the we gator the it's gator good. likes to go to uh, climb into bed. Joe, uh, is that is that true? <laughs> does, does Wally like to climb into bed with you? He does. He actually sleeps with me quite often. I mean, um, do you think that's weird? <laughs> do I think it's weird? I think it's totally off the hook. <laughs> How did I've this? I've had gators over thirty years. I've never had a gator ever, ever. Why is it? none of them I'd ever leave in my bed with me? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say this is supposed to be a special gator. How did this even happen? Where were you? You got Wally, and you're like, you know what? There's something different about this guy, and he can be a, like a service gator. He is a service gator. He is a uh, legally licensed emotional support reptile. The first one right now is known in all of history to I, legally qualify. Legally qualify. I mean, so so are, are there people, though, who, uh, when you introduce uh, Wally to them, are a little taken aback and go, I don't know if I want Wally near me? <laughs> Very few. Really? Very few people. Most people, they're just so anxious to get their hug and kiss after they've seen him on the, all over the internet and social media and stuff everybody's anxious to get their hug and kiss from him well he is famous now so that that probably helps right he is literally world famous uh he's been on tv pretty much almost in every country in the world already uh i have people come from uh singapore finland iceland uh australia africa uh india india quite often uh germany quite often matter of fact germany just left here about Two weeks ago, the lady come over here for spend three hours and get hugs and kisses from Wally. But Joe, and, but Joe, do you ever? I mean, especially with, you know, if it, I don't know if it climbs into bed with you. I mean, it is a wild animal, right? I mean, absolutely. Do you ever worry about actually falling asleep with, with a, um, an alligator? I do fall asleep with him. Yeah, but doesn't that like worry you? Uh, I rode bulls for twenty two and a half years. After I get all the sense knocked out of me, I ain't got none. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> when when no, when he gives uh, a hug and a kiss, what what is I that like? I have a lot of respect. I have a lot of respect for reptiles. And stuff. Uh, Wally has dom- dominated the emotional support world. Uh, I trust cat or anything else for real. Uh, we already know he does not bite. He refuses to bite anything that is alive. 
Uh, we do not know why he was like that from the, the day he was caught from the wild. My thing was he was 18 months in the wild. He had to kill things to eat. Hmm. Why did he stop biting? And my thing is, okay, I'm a Christian. I, I believe he was God sent because I work with a lot of people and feed a lot of hungry families and stuff like that there. Well, my funds ran out and I ended up getting Wally. And then Wally started when he was about three years. Well, he was about three years old. Uh, people just started sending donations and stuff. And we started using that money to feed uh, needy families. Hmm. That's our goal is what? to help other people. And he works with about 40 special needs adults and four classes of daycare special needs children. Joe, what, what do you feed him? What does he eat? He only eats chicken legs. Dead rats and cheesy popcorn. That's all. Cheesy, cheesy popcorn. <laughs> doesn't yeah. doesn't doesn't he get all that like orange stuff all over him? Doesn't he hate that? Because no, I, I do. I do too, but he don't. <laughs> doesn't mind. He doesn't mind. It's the most but chill alligator. The other alligators the they'll eat anything. They'll eat a live rat, mouse, snake. Don't matter. But while he has a chihuahua that sits on him and watches TV, he doesn't. They're best of friends. Uh, while he has free roam in the house, twenty four seven. Uh, Chihuahua runs the house twenty four seven, and never, ever, ever been an issue. How long do do alligators live? They can live up to ninety five years in captivity. Wow! And and Wally is seven, right? You said He's about seven. Seven years old. Yep. So, so I'm only going out living by two years. <laughs> what's his? What's I'm six, his? I'm I'm sixty nine. What's his future though? I mean, what's going to happen as he gets older? Well, my my best friend and our biggest supporter she had matter of fact she helps does does a lot of the stuff uh she's mostly behind the scenes she don't like being in front of the camera her children uh wally has taken to her children like you think they were his and uh her daughter if no matter what goes on if her daughter gets in the pool in the pond or the pool he won't pull with nobody else he goes to her and then that's all he does <laughs> so he'll he, have somebody he's already, he's, already, he's already willed to her joe wow. honey there with oh. Wally the Gator, uh, up for America's favorite pet. He is kind of cute in an uh, alligator kind of way. Yes, he's got that toothy smile. That's right. Right <laughs> off the side there. Yeah. All right. That's in-depth for today.